Hymn number 122, Brother Randall has asked us if we would kindly mark that and at the appropriate time later in the service we'll hymn that together as a song of encouragement, a song of invitation. It is so good to be able to come together today, this first day of the week, a day on which God has so majestically blessed us in a physical fashion, and how honorable also to recall the spiritual gifts and the blessings that we, in addition, are able to enjoy. As is always the case, uh, as we think about the announcements that were made, again, those on our sick list, the gospel meetings in the area, the other activities here in the weeks that are ahead of us, as we think about also those things, how blessed we are to be able to push forward the boundaries of God's kingdom and to work in the effort to bring about good. I might, as I have in the most recent Sundays, point out that the newest puzzles are available in the foyer, so if you haven't picked up one of them yet, feel free to do that there in the literature rack on the left as you exit the auditorium. That particular puzzle covers, again, the next two chapters in the book of John, and as we continue to study that tonight, we will look at another section of the book of John. So come back if you can and let us study tonight some more aspects of that beautiful gospel account of the book of John. But for now, the moral decay of America. You might have noted that in the bulletin as the title of the lesson this morning, also, of course, on the wall to my left. As we look at some of the features and the aspects of that this morning, we, of course, in the limited time that we have, will only be able to scratch, in a sense, the surface of it. But I'm convinced that we can at least set in our mind the nature of the issue, and also, might I suggest, as we look at it in that way, we need to begin by clarifying clearly what it is that we mean by the moral decay of America. These introductory thoughts, I would hope, would begin us upon a brief journey this morning. Many, at least in recent decades, have expressed rather noted concern about the United States of America. And I don't necessarily mean those from without. It's in many instances those from within who have expressed a rather dire set of issues and concerns relative to the manner in which the country now exists and the way in which it is heading. In order to be much clearer about it, some have expressed concern that our military isn't as strength, isn't as strong and as mighty as perhaps it should be. Others have made note that the educational system is failing. Others have noted industrially and economically we are not the power that we once were. Perhaps it's to be granted that all those statements are true. At least many of them are statistically substantiated and there is no question about it. But I would submit those are not the concern for this morning. For instance, you'll notice in the very last line of that portion, what about, if questions were to ask, what about the moral standing of the country? The ethical nature of the fabric of our nation? What about the godly aspect of it? What about the spiritual thrust of the country? May I submit that when one discusses, at least usually, the problems of America, those are the primary concerns, aren't they? And it is to them I would invite your attention with me this morning. As we look at the moral decay of America, let's first analyze the problem. And in that analysis, we will try to both identify and clearly substantiate the matter. And as we close the lesson, we will represent a call to action, for we will present a solution to the problem. And you might notice I did say a solution. 
It is not a magical one, nor is it one that is in fact far-fetched, for it is not relying upon what feeble intelligence I might have or upon any other person. We shall find God's solution, and we can be guaranteed it is the solution. Without further ado, let's define our problem and strive to look at it more carefully. As we seek to define it, I went to a dictionary and let me ask you to notice the definition of these terms. When one uses the word moral and makes reference to the term decay and then puts them together and thus refers to moral decay, notice how that is presented and what it means. The word moral, I think as we would each appreciate, is concerned with right and wrong. More specifically, it is concerned with right and wrong and the distinctions between them. On the other hand, that word decay identifies the following. It is to lose gradually its original form, quality, or value. It is to fall into a state of disrepair or in a state of shabbiness. Thus, to put them together, the following statement is thus directly that which follows. Moral decay would thus identify a state in which the distinction between right and wrong has fallen into disrepair. The phrase moral decay thus identifies a state in which the distinction between right and wrong has fallen into shabbiness or disrepair. Has America suffered moral decay? Is America currently suffering moral decay? Is America now in a position in which the distinction between right and wrong is either not being made by some or willfully choosing to be ignored by others? Those questions, I think, stand on their own as a very significant, a very vital, and a very essential question. And it is the next matter of my point in the lesson to help us answer it. Not in a qualitative way, but in a quantitative way. Has America suffered moral decay? Could I draw your attention to some statistics? These I have taken from an index which is published and which is available in much the same way that, for instance, the Dow Jones Industrial Average tracks the stock market and various other indices that the government makes available track various other things, such as the economic power of the country. There is an index known as the Index of Leading Cultural Indicators. And I'm quoting, at least in what follows, from the 1993 edition of that index. As you can well tell, these statistics, if you at least study them, they are for that period from the year 1960 until 1993. So we're spanning 33 years as we look at these statistics to follow. What are some of these statistics? First of all, perhaps in a positive way, the United States population during that time increased by 41%, while at the very same time, the gross domestic product practically tripled. That means materially the country was in good shape. Money, at least on the whole, was to be had by all. Folks had enough food on the table. By and large, there was enough things to purchase the physical necessities of life. The gross domestic product practically tripled in that span of 33 years. But, and this perhaps draws their attention much more directly, but notice what also occurred during that same 33-year interval. Violent crime in our country rose 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560%. 560
That means by a factor of over six, the number of violent crimes actually increased. What's more, illegitimate births during that 33-year period rose by 419%. Usually when we think percents, even 50% is large. To speak of an increase of 560% or 419% is almost staggering to the mind. But notice our figures increase. The divorce rate during that same 33-year period quadrupled. The number of divorces quadrupled in 33 years. In addition to all of that, the percentage of children living in single-parent households tripled. That means it rose by 200%. In addition to those matters, or at least in continuation of them, the suicide rate among teenagers increased by 200%. Furthermore, SAT scores, oddly enough, fell by about 80 points. Finally, on that screen, one could in addition mention ever-increasing tendencies toward homosexuality, ever-increasing tendencies in relation to alcoholism, we each have read about or perhaps experienced the 1960s, the drug abuse that began then and has only accelerated its same sense. To those figures, one could mention rape, pornography, robbery, murder, child abuse. Many of those, no doubt, included in that 560% increase in violent crime. But the numbers speak for themselves, don't they? In listing all of those, Perhaps it would also be fair to add to that the following. At the same time these violent crime numbers and these other things were taking place, the federal government increased its social spending by a factor of five. And perhaps finally, the spending on education was increased by 225%. The government was trying to address the problems. The government was attempting, at least in knowledge, to do something about the terrible state of affairs relative to these increases. It is at this point in the lesson I have made the following statement. I believe the statistics will bear us out. America has and continues to suffer moral decay. The numbers again speak for themselves. When we contemplate the existence of moral decay in our very land, a land founded on the premise of honoring the God of heaven and appreciating the freedoms that flow from him, we are still suffering moral decay. It's at this point in the lesson I think it entirely fair to make note of five brief statements made by Dr. Edward Gibbon. He penned a book now several hundred years ago, but it's a very telling book. The title of that book was The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and in it he detailed, based on his own research, the reasons as to why the greatest empire of the ancient world crumbled and fell. What were the factors that led to Rome falling? I've listed five of them for you. First, Dr. Gibbon said that there was a rapid increase in divorce. And that led to an instability in the home as well as in the bedrock of the foundation of the Roman Empire. Secondly, Dr. Gibbon noted that taxes began to be raised and increased dramatically so that the government could pay for all the pet things that everybody wanted. Thirdly, Dr. Gibbon noted that the general populace began to have a mad craving or craze for sports, and many of them were brutal in nature. Fourthly, 
Dr. Gibbon also pointed out that Rome invested significantly in building gigantic military armaments while ignoring the problems, at least in the main, that the people were suffering socially. And finally, the faith that was had was noted to be a decay in religion. That decay, of course, took the following note. Religion existed, but it was only an outward form. It wasn't from the heart. People basically lived it externally, not internally. I wonder, does America seem to be showing the same kinds of things? Could we at least say that at least in an introductory or beginning way some of these are appearing in our land and in our country? If so, what happened to Rome was almost certain to happen to us. I would submit to you that these things that I've listed in terms of statistics are symptoms of the problem. They are not the problem itself. And that's an important point to note. Perhaps a good way of thinking about that would be this. If I were to go to the doctor and say, I've got eye problems and feet problems, he could perhaps address those, perhaps identifying things he could do to change prescription in my eyes, or perhaps addressing matters of my feet. But if they never address the underlying problem, which maybe would be diabetes, it didn't matter what else would be done, the problem is still there. And the symptoms are going to recur no matter what else is done. I'd submit the same thing is true in America. Our government can throw all the money it wants to at fighting various and sundry of these problems, but if the basic issue isn't addressed, the problems are just going to reappear. They may be in a different form, admittedly, but they will reappear. In fairness, it would be entirely then to notice, having identified that the problem does exist, is there a solution? If so, what is it? Where is it to be sought? How is it implemented? And what can be done by you and me to encourage that implementation? The next section in the lesson I'd like to point out is the, is the central problem. Given that all these other matters were merely symptoms of it, what is then the problem? Here's the problem. America in the main has rejected God and the Bible. In the main, that's not to say that every one of the 300 and some odd million of us have, but at least in the main, America has rejected God and the Bible. Look at some matters that have begun to take full force in the news in recent months. For instance, the state of Oregon now has legalized murder. They call it physician-assisted suicide, but call it what you will. It's still legalized murder. Six states in our country now have legalized homosexual marriage. Six of them. And who would have ever thought ten years ago there'd be even one? Look at what has happened. In addition to that, you could make note of every single state has legalized abortion because our Supreme Court, of course, ruled in 1973 that it had to be so. It was their ruling that that was the way that was constitutionally right. In addition to that, laws have been enacted in various and sundry states that have removed the display of the Ten Commandments. It is now not legal in many places to say a prayer in public. It is now not legal in many cases to display Christmas-oriented things. It is now not legal in many places for school children to pray in any organized way and sometimes even silently is being called into question. 
Friend, where are we headed? Does it sound as though we're a nation that, again, in many ways has begun to reject and in some ways already has succeeded in rejecting God and His Word? These matters only tempt us to move a little bit further in our consideration. And may I suggest that the consequence of all of that is naturally this. Moral relativism. If God is rejected, then naturally there must be some authority that is put in His place. Something or someone to which one looks for the answers and for the authority in regard to actions and activities. And many have looked inwardly. They look to themselves, do they not? If God is not the authority, I am at liberty to choose what I want, when I want, the way I want, and nobody has the right. Nobody has the right to question or in fact suggest anything about me being wrong. Moral relativism is its name. Now that's a fancy term, but that's what it means. Everybody does that which is right in their own eyes. Of course, as we will appreciate the terribleness of that state, that's now where we are for many, many people. The thought, of course, leads us to notice that many absolutely disdain and stand in great antagonism to anybody even asserting that they have authority in regard to question, and that even includes God. Have you ever heard someone say, well, what right do you have? What right does God have to suggest, to demand, to in fact insinuate anything relative to my behavior? I will determine what is wrong and what is right. Having outlined the problem, namely the rejection of God, and its principal consequence, this matter of relativism, may I suggest we look at some verses in the Word of God and listen to how God a long time ago has not only asserted the existence of a problem like this, but again even tells us what the solution is. In Jeremiah 10.23, as we start with moral relativism, for example, there the wonderful prophet in boldness was told by God, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Does that sound like man, no matter how genius-like he may be, how scholarly, how learned, how educated he could come to be, can he ever direct himself in a way that would be pleasing and that would lead to an orderly and right society? The answer is no. But notice in Proverbs 20:24, we there read that man's goings are of the Lord. We thus need to rely not upon our relativism and what we think, but to turn back into the way of God and let Him direct things morally to determine what is wrong and also what is right. In fact, isn't it interesting that in the Bible there is a description of a state, a physical state, that chose to go this route. In Judges, the closing five chapters of that book, two times this statement appears. There was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. I wonder, did that produce a wonderful, pleasant, utopian place to live? All we'd have to do, if time permitted, was read the closing five chapters of Judges. Let me summarize. It produced one of the bleakest, saddest, darkest, most miserable, most pathetic sections of Scripture in all the Old Testament. Because here was Israel, the very people of God, who should have known better, 
And yet they chose everybody to do what he or she thought was right. And what are some of the things that you see in those chapters? There's rampant homosexuality, much like what we see today. One sees the dismemberment of a body and sending it all throughout Israel. One sees a man stealing from his own mother. One sees rampant idolatry. Some of it sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? No wonder, because we have the same problem now we had then, the rejection of God and His Word. In addition to that text in Judges, we notice the exact opposite stated to us by the Lord Himself. Jesus said there is truth. It isn't left to you and to me to figure it out. God has already delivered it, revealed it, presented it, made, made it known. Jesus did he not say, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But Lord, what is truth? Pilate asked that question, didn't he, in John 18, and the Lord in John 17 had answered it. In John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Here is then the truth when it comes to relative matters of morality or anything else. The truth is here. In fact, to exemplify that, notice how it approaches morality. Is there an objective morality? Is there then the case that there is right and there is wrong and it doesn't depend on what I think about it? The answer is yes. For look in Galatians 5, if you please, at verses 19 and following. Or look in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and following. Just two places where various things are said by God to be wrong. It doesn't matter what I think about it. It doesn't matter if I support it or endorse it or not. God says it's wrong. And furthermore, you might notice that we will reap what we sow. Of that, there is no doubt. If we reap the seed or if we sow the seeds of relativism, we're going to reap anarchy, we're going to reap chaos, and we're going to reap that which is greatly disturbing. God is not deceived. Or rather, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting, and he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. That phrase in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, reminds us, doesn't it, that these passages have directly told the tale. America's moral decay is due to her rejection and failure to know and implement the truth of God. If that's implemented, if that is set forth, and if that is generally lived by the populace, these other immorality kinds of things will not be tolerated. The populace will rise up in great note and squash any kind of these other matters that have in track tried to become a real thing. I would suggest to you, in light of these matters, perhaps one final slide. It's time for action. Having described moral decay and having substantiated it with some rather frightening numbers and having looked at the fact that God says what the solution is to these things, let's use the latter section of our lesson then to just remind ourselves of the importance of some basic things so that moral decay doesn't creep into our life and, yea, into the lives of those whom we love. First, it begins with a respect, a healthy respect for God and for His Word. 
Notice again, that's what has led to America's problem, isn't it? The rejection of God and His Word. If we thus maintain a very honored and respectful and healthy consideration for God, His existence, and His Word, that'll be the first plank in making sure that moral decay has no place with us. Some passages throughout the Bible that constantly remind us of these. We can go back as far as Exodus 20, where the children of Israel, were they not told, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That may seem so evident. Why, If it's so obvious, why did God even need to say it? Wasn't it clear? He just led them out of Egypt. He opened the Red Sea from the dry, dry walk through on dry land. Wasn't it obvious that He was the God of heaven? But we well know, isn't it human tendency to put other things that we can see and we can experience in place of Him? Israel had that problem and America has it today. For that reason, there are some who worship the God of the military and others the God of our economy and others the God of our industry and yet others, various other gods related to the physical matters of our land. Those are not the Yahweh, Jehovah of heaven. God is in control of all of those things and then some. We need to have a respect and a great one for the appreciation of who He is. The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep His commandments. When we as a nation return to that, we will be strong in all those other ways we mentioned. We will be strong educationally. We will be strong militarily. And we will be strong economically and industrially. Those are the blessings He'll pour upon us. But if we are not strong morally, ethically, religiously, and in a godly way, those other things are just going to continue to slide. The matters that we've discussed only point us to what Paul uttered in Ephesians 4. In verse 6 of that chapter, he said, There is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. We are not then a nation built upon the premises of Hinduism or Buddhism or some other such thing. We are a nation founded upon the blessings of the God of heaven. And until we honor that fact, we are going to be a nation in moral decay. Perhaps nextly one can appreciate how often the New Testament writers also remind us about the pertinent character of the Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in what? Righteousness. That word simply means right living. If we want to know how to live rightly, this is where it's found. It isn't found in the latest self-help books. It isn't found in the latest other matters that humankind has fancied to produce. It's found here. And we need to revisit it as a nation, as a people, individually, to let the Word of God provide the direction that God has provided within it. In Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3, even the Old Testament, God told Ezekiel, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words unto them. Israel was in, in a great problem then, weren't they? They were in captivity in Babylon. And God told Ezekiel, this is what you give them. Notice, if we're suffering today, and no doubt our economy is certainly suffering currently at least, where should we turn with regard to our nation as a whole for the help that we need? It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. 
It needs to be openly presented, considered, set forth, thrust, and utilized so that we, our leaders, and we as a people can again be blessed so wonderfully by the God of heaven. Perhaps nextly we can appreciate that this very word that we have before us is that which shall be our judge. If that be the case, if it be the true that it is the standard of judgment, then doesn't it naturally follow that it identifies what is right and what is wrong? Because God will in fact judge on that. In John twelve forty eight, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And in Revelation 20, on that great white throne judgment scene, when the books were opened, one of those books is the very book that's the guidebook for the Christian era, the Holy Bible. May we thus love the Scriptures, employ them to guide ourselves and those whom we love. The realization of those points lead us perhaps to draw this interesting summary statement. With regard to a nation... What was it that was said about a nation in Proverbs 14.34? Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is of reproach to any people. Earlier in the lesson this morning, we noted a number of explicit cases in which America has endorsed immorality. And not only endorsed it, but seems to lift high its banner and wave it proudly. Solomon, through God, said, Righteousness exalteth a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. We desperately need leaders who know that and who not only know it but are serious about doing something about it. And you and I can be the individuals who put in office, at least as nearly as we can, those who feel that way. For that reason, in Psalm 9, verse 17, the psalmist said, God shall turn into hell all those who have rejected him. If we reject the God of heaven, rebel against his will, choose to go our own way as a country, our standing is only going to worsen. We're going to continue to slide down the precipice of, immor of immorality. And like a canker of sore, it'll eat us from within. The matter then that relates near the close of this lesson points out the seriousness of obeying God in everything he commands. We ought to obey God rather than men, reads Acts 5.29. And aren't we reminded on a number of other cases and situations how that obedience to God will be rewarded by Him because we'll be viewed by Him as faithful and those who are members of His service. In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, as well also as that same chapter, verses 21 and following, are we not those who are able to read passages like this? First of all, the verse 13 passage. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth into life, and few there be that find it. Then verses 21 and following. Jesus there made note, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy to thy name? And in thy name done many wonderful works, and in thy name cast out devils? Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. It is significant then to notice that the Lord said, The blessing awaits those who do his will. 
one can talk about it all one wishes, and we have many in our country who seem anxious to talk about it. But as we've learned today, it is an obedient and faithful implementation of the things contained in the Word of God that will turn this country around. Nothing else is going to do it. In light of those matters, uh, it would be fair to draw our lesson to its conclusion this morning, perhaps with a call to action that rehearses our lesson in this way. I certainly wouldn't apologize and would not deny that many of those statistics we looked at early in the lesson are frightening. They describe a place of unsafe that is not safe, a place of danger, a place that is a place of concern. But it's not hopeless because God and His Word has described former places that were like that, namely Israel, but they did have the blessing of God and by His favor they indeed emerged from those terrible and dark times and became what God wanted them to be. It can happen in America. It can happen right here. If we as a nation will turn back to this book, following it with faith, with respect, and with love, and following it with direct obedience, we too will find a pendulum will swing and we will become a righteous nation again and a nation that will feel the blessings of the Almighty God of Heaven. Today, what about the call to action as it comes to you and me personally? Where do you stand? Where do I stand? It's not just a problem about them and about somewhere else. It, of course, has to start with you and me individually. Are we committed to the Holy Scriptures and to God as we should? Are we committed to fearing Him and keeping His commandments? Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Today, as you examine your heart and as I examine mine, might we ask ourselves this, are you a Christian, a faithful one, and what about me? If you find that answer is a no, or even if you doubt it, it's time to do some serious soul searching. For you see, if you're in a place of doubt, you too are in a place where you shouldn't be. For we can, from the point of view of the Bible, understand the knowledge and certainty of salvation for those who walk in the light. Read 1 John 1 verse 7 and 1 John 2 verse 23 and following and 1 John 5 verse 13. Today, if you've never become a Christian, why not today? Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Be willing to confess His name. And then be willing to be immersed or baptized for the remission of sins. If you've done that at some point in the past, but you haven't lived faithfully to it, come back to that first love today. And why not now? even as, we, as together we stand and as we sing.